continually in Revelation we've got visions of the end to encourage the believers as they're uh, suffering and coughing and hacking their way through this life and every now and again there is this vision of the end and we've got that in Revelation 15 here but <clears throat> in verse uh, 2 uh, it, it would seem that we've got an allusion there to what has gone on at the, at the, uh, at the Red Sea he sees a sea of glass mingled with fire it's very calm but it's had fire on it and I think that's the allusion to the calm Red Sea after it's returned over the Egyptians and he goes on and them that had gotten the victory over the beast now God in Exodus 15 verse 1 uh, the song of Moses is described as, uh, as victorious over, over Egypt and the beast well Egypt was a prototype I would say of the beast of the last days and if you want some references for Egypt being described in terms of uh, a great beast uh, Isaiah 51 verse 9 Ezekiel 29 verse 3 <clears throat> these people have the harps of God rather like Miriam's timbrels they sing them at the song of Moses and they say who shall not fear you verse 4 and glorify your name that's right out of Exodus 15 14 to 16 all nations shall come and worship before you because your judgments are made manifest maybe a reference to how the uh, the nations of Canaan, the modern-day Arabs, as it were, uh, Palestinians, feared because of the judgment of God that was made apparent at, at the Red Sea. And you've got <coughs> plenty of references there um, to, to, to that, really, in, uh, in how Rahab speaks. So the implication is that there must be an equivalent of the latter-day persecution of God's people in, Israel, in, uh, in Egypt and then the Red Sea deliverance, the Passover night deliverance becomes a picture of our deliverance in the last days and that's why all the way through the descriptions and revelation of the judgments which are to come upon the earth you've got a lot of allusions to the plagues that came upon Egypt um, for example chapter 16 verse 21 there falls a great hail out of heaven upon men and yet they still don't repent that, that's very much the plague of hail of Exodus 9.22 I'm afraid to say the implication of this is very much that we will go through some tribulation in the last days and I have elsewhere uh, suggested that the 42 months is a literal three and a half years you've got the uh, 1260 days again three and a half years you've got the three and a half years of Elijah's ministry um, preparing the way um, as it were and it seems that we have to go through that period so the question is well if we believe the return of Jesus is to be imminent has that period started well it could have done and if it has that would imply therefore because we are not being physically persecuted as Israel were in Egypt you could imply that there is an especially intense spiritual persecution of God's people and the way that unspirituality is all around us I think in this world in a way it has never been it, that could be the case of course it's always true the world has got progressively worse and worse but I, I don't want to sound like my dear mother here but I, I really do think that this generation or how we are just at this moment is 
really unprecedented for its unspirituality compared to previous generations. The other possibility is uh, a bit more straightforward, and it's this, that we should live as if we expect the return of Christ to be imminent, watching always for his coming. But that does not mean that we are therefore railroaded by that into having to interpret prophecy in a way that means that whatever we think the prophecy means, it must mean that Christ is about to come. One possibility is that, yes, there will be three and a half year tribulation and we have not got there yet. But it's also true that the way things change in our world is, a, is also unprecedentedly quickly. Uh, fast uh, changes happen almost overnight these days because of the whole nature of the world economy and the geopolitical sort of system that we've got. So it could really be, it could really be that we are going to go through that period and it hasn't come yet. Now, here in Revelation 15, at the same time as we've got all these allusions to the Song of Moses, you've also got the idea that the most holy place in the, the heavenly temple has now been opened. Verse 5, <clears throat> I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the temple is filled with smoke. No one can go into the temple. Verse, uh, verse 8. When else was, what other time was the temple opened? What other time was the, the most holy place uh, opened? Well, it was when Jesus died. And it's John, who's uh, writing here in Revelation, <clears throat> who's alluding, I think, to his gospel, where he records that. that the veil of the temple was rent in twain. The, the way to the most holy was what was made apparent. When you come to chapter 16 and verse 17, there's a voice that comes then out of the temple saying, It is done. This is very similar to the Lord's words when he died, It is finished. And there's a great earthquake in chapter 16 verse 18. Um, the greatest earthquake that there has ever been on earth, it says which uh, matches, I think, the earthquake at the death of Jesus, when the most holy place is opened. So what are we to make of that? I think it's saying that, as it were, the sufferings of Jesus come to their culmination when this tribulation period finishes. Therefore, the time of persecution for the believers is being likened to the sufferings of Jesus on the cross. We've met that idea before in our studies in Revelation. <clears throat> but when we looked at chapter 7, we found there the phrase, the, the Great Tribulation. Um, and we saw a vision there in chapter 7 of how the believers in the last days come out, verse 14 of chapter 7, of Great Tribulation. And I made the point that the Greek word translated tribulation is the same word used in Colossians 1, uh, I think 23, for the afflictions of Christ. And how Paul says that we are being asked in our lives to fulfill, to fill up the afflictions of, of Jesus on the cross in our lives right now. So then, you could argue that the last generation, which, please God, will be us, the last generation has got to go through this tribulation, this great affliction, in order to unite us more completely with the sufferings of Jesus on the cross. 
And that would make sense, because having gone through that, <clears throat> we would also then share in his resurrection, which is what we signed up to when we were baptized. We went under the water, got baptized into his death, up out of the water is like his resurrection. So then, if we're going to be the only generation that will not taste of death, and Jesus will come in our lifetimes, and we shall be changed, and go into immortality, having never physically died. That's obviously a, a generation without precedent, and it's not surprising, therefore, that there will be this period before that happens, where we are, as it were, prepared for that, prepared for effectively participation in a resurrection like that of the Lord, by having to go through the tribulation, the affliction which he went through before that, which effectively will be a living death. So, that is another reason why there are indications, which we looked at earlier on in Revelation, that this great tribulation could be avoidable for some. And you've got that passage at the end of Isaiah 26 that talks about, Come, my people, enter into your chambers for a little while, until the indignation be overpassed. And we saw how, in one of the letters of Jesus, he says, You may have tribulation, ten days. And to another of the churches he says, If you keep the word of my patience, I will keep you from the hour of tribulation. And it's interesting that the hour is exactly the same word that Jesus uses about my hour has not yet come, talking about his final death. So there, is, there are these implications, and there's others, that we may be spared in some way having to go through that tribulation. How mechanically that will happen, I I have no idea, but it would be rather similar to how the people of Israel and Egypt began experiencing the plagues that came upon Egypt, but then the, the final plagues they didn't go through. Uh, there was no darkness uh, for the, the Israelites, but there was for the Egyptians, and so on and so forth, and of course culminating in, in the death of the firstborn. Whatever. We're taking this bread and wine to symbolize the fact that I fully recognize and accept that I have signed up to the living death with Jesus right now. That that is what life is about in one sense now, a connection with him in his time of dying, in his time of greater suffering, picking up the cross daily so that we might also share in his resurrection. And that is quite right, that we should be reminded of this. Whenever we do the breaking of bread, and of course not only at the time of the breaking of bread, this is just a time when finally you get your hands on something physical, a bit of physical uh, symbolism in this bread and wine. But of course the essence is that we are to live life daily and hourly, even minute by minute at times, with this constant awareness that I am in this world to learn of Jesus, and to share in his life, in his sufferings, in his joy, in his death, and in his resurrection. Now chapter 15 verse 4 says that because of these great judgments that are come to come upon the earth in the last days, all nations will come and worship before you because your judgments have been made manifest. You might think that people would say, huh, God did that. God judged all those people. I don't want a God who, who does that. But, you know, the harder side of God, 
seems to attract people in one sense. Throughout Ezekiel, you have the statement that God judged nations in order that men might know him as Yahweh. Just want some references there in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 25, 11, 28, 22, 30, 19. Yahweh, Isaiah 5, verse 16, is exalted in his judging of people. So then, in a sense, these judgments are what bring people to him. And you, you've got that uh, again uh, in chapter 14, if you like to turn back a page. Um, verse 7, fear God and give glory to him because the hour of his judgment is come and worship him. You think of Ananias and Sapphira, when they were struck down and killed because they'd uh, apparently been generous to God but they hadn't been completely generous and they made out they were more committed to God than they were, they were struck down. Now the cynic would say, but wait a minute, these guys, all right, they had this property, they sold it, and they uh, they gave uh, they gave quite a bit of that money to to God. That's pretty good. And God God kills them. Okay, well, yeah, they 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 lied about it and said that uh, they'd actually sold it for less than they did. And sure, they kept a bit for themselves, but that's understandable. And well, yes, uh, you know, don't religious people generally sort of uh, like to show off a bit about their devotion to their God, etc. Well, okay, but plus minus, they they were committed to God. They didn't have to do that didn't have to sell anything, didn't have to give him a penny in that sense. And yet God struck them down. The cynic would say, he's a hard man. Whereas, what do we read? We read that great fear fell upon everybody, because of God's judgment of Ananias and Sapphira, and large numbers of people are converted to him. Now, just because we are very used, I suppose, to hearing this pathetic stuff about, oh, God's a hard man, and uh, look at what he does, and da-de-da, that doesn't mean that everybody is like that. For those with a heart for God, I think that the fact that God is a God of judgment, and that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, that actually motivates. I really think that that motivates what it says here. It, It does, and we've looked at fairly strong Bible case that it does. In other words, realizing the sense of the future that we might miss, I think it does get you on your mettle when you realize that as you and I are here today, we have in our ultimate destiny only one of two possible exits from the Day of Judgment. We're going to come to the Day of Judgment. Let's never forget that. We will be there. Uh, You and I, we will be there. And we have only one of two possible exits, to the right hand or to the left. The fact there is no middle road, the fact there is no purgatory, I mean, that's a a greatly attractive idea, you know, purgatory. It's just too bad it's not true. Um, You know, this Catholic idea that you you sort of, um, if you didn't quite make it, well, you know, you you have to suffer. uh, But at the end of it, you know, you get sort of let in the pearly gates. Um, I think we'd all say, if we were given the three options, well, what do you think you're worthy of? condemnation, acceptance, or a bit of suffering in purgatory, and then you get led into the kingdom. I think we'd all say, yeah, yeah, give me the last one, that's, that's it. But there isn't, fortunately. And I say fortunately because the fact there is no third way, there is no third road, that there is only to the right or to the left, that this is incredibly motivating. Because 
every every decision that we meet in life, and in one sense life is a, a whole stream of decisions in the course of every day, we need to decide them in the light of what ultimately we're going to be doing forever, which is living forever in God's kingdom. <clears throat> So then, what we're going through now as we break bread, as we come before the cross, as we see the most holy place opened, um, we are really coming before the, uh, a foretaste of, of judgment. And I think you, uh, it's worth just pointing out the similarities with Isaiah 6, where you have a vision of the Lord High and lifted up, enthroned in the temple. And there's an earthquake, the temple is filled with smoke, the doorposts that hold up the veil to the most holy place are shaken, and the implication is the veil falls. And then John 12 says, Isaiah said this, when he saw the glory of Jesus and spoke about him. And <clears throat> when Isaiah 6 says that he saw the Lord lifted up, that's the same Hebrew words as you get later on in Isaiah 52 and 53 uh, when you've got the vision of the suffering servant, the, the song of the suffering servant, which is so clearly talking about the crucifixion. He sees there the Lord high and lifted up. My servant shall be extolled and shall be exalted or lifted up and be very high. But who believed the report of that? Because my servant at that time, when he was high and lifted up, extolled and lifted up high, there was no beauty that we should desire him, etc. So then, <clears throat> as I've said, the, the last generation are going to go through the essence of the sufferings of Christ, and therefore his final coming in victory and the establishment of his kingdom is, as it were, the cry, it is finished. Uh, 16 verse 17 here in Revelation, it is done. Incidentally, going back to Isaiah 6 and the connection with 53, because of high and lifted up, in John 12, <coughs> Jesus quotes Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53 together. Uh, you can just check that out. But he, he clearly saw the, the connection between them. And yet, out of that vision that Isaiah saw, he was convicted of his sin. He said, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, woe is me. But out of that same vision there flew a seraph that touched his lips and said, You're cleansed. Out of that same vision of what is effectively the crucifixion. And then he hears a voice that says, Who's going to go preach to Israel? And he says, Here am I, send me. He's just a moment before that been convinced that he is a sinner and he should die and, and that and that he's no good. And now he's persuaded out of that same vision of God's forgiveness and therefore his response to that is to say well here am I sure I'll do whatever you want I will be your servant so then <clears throat> we as we sit here and as we break bread we come before the cross of Jesus and in that sense we have our judgment Jesus said now is the judgment of this world Finally, by way of uh, exhortation, let's have a look at verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief. And 
putting that together with the words of the Olivet Prophecy, and we've said before that Revelation is very clearly an extension of the Olivet Prophecy, keeps alluding to it, uh, and the parables which follow the Olivet Prophecy, which I suggest are equally part of that prophecy. They are appendices uh, about how we should live in those last days that the Olivet Prophecy talks about. Um, Behold, I come as a thief. Well, he should not come as a thief for us. But blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now, we are to be watching, not in the sense of trying to uh, interpret world defense in the light of Bible prophecy, but watching ourselves, watching our own garments, keeping the garments that we were given, um, the idea being ensuring that you are maintaining your, your status in Christ, because the white garments that we're given are his righteousness, and we're clothed in that, and without that we shall walk naked and ashamed. So it's not so much an exhortation to works, but to just keep on believing that really he sees me as if I am perfect, not that I am. We are declared right in a legal sense, Paul says. We are justified. It's the whole point of Romans. We are dressed in white clothing, as we have opening visions of Revelation and letters to the churches, and at the end of Revelation, later on in Revelation, we we have the same image. It's a great idea, a great uh, metaphor, and Jesus has it in, in one of his parables where he talks about the man who refuses the wedding garment. And apparently... When people went to a wedding, they were given a white garment. And one guy went into the wedding and said, Sure, I, my clothing's good enough. And he was, he was thrown out. The point is that we are covered in his righteousness. We are seen as if we are Jesus. Because he ultimately is the, the one who is covered. He is clothed in white, white raiment. And so we are seen as if we are him. All that is true of him, if he's covered in white clothing, so are we. If he's the seed of Abraham, so are we. If he's the light of the world, so you are the light of the world, etc. And the warning is that if you don't do that, you will walk naked. In other words, you have nothing. You are nothing, and you have nothing spiritually of yourselves. And they see his shame. In that day, for the rejected, their lives will be made bare in front of everybody, indeed, for for the righteous as well. And that's, I think, why hypocrisy, acting as if we are something or somebody that we are not, is so foolish, and it's why it's so criticized by Jesus, because it really indicates a lack of faith in the fact that ultimately we are going to live eternally with each other and in one sense we're going to know everything there was to know about each other's lives but I would ask us to reflect why exactly this warning in verse 15 to the uh, those who may be condemned who may walk naked and their shame will be seen by others uh, why is it inserted here because it is lodged in between verses well, really from verse 12 onwards, talking about the, uh, the, the sixth vial that's poured out, and then that's from 12 to 14, then you've got this verse 15 we're looking at about the rejected believers, and then verse 16, the gathering of them together into 
Armageddon. It seems to be talking about the judgments on the unbelieving world, and yet the Lord sticks in there, verse 15, talking about the rejection of, the, of his people who are unworthy. Well, I think that that's for a purpose, because really the ultimate condemnation of the wicked of the day of judgment is to say, look, go back to the world. You didn't have a heart for me. Your heart was for the world all the time. Well, yeah, just, just go back to it. Oh, no, we want to be with you. We want to live forever. No, no, look, it's too late. You spend your whole life siding with the world, but go back to it. That's why, in a breaking of bread context, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that we should examine ourselves at the breaking of bread, and of course all through our lives, and condemn ourselves now, realizing that we are not worthy, that we are naked and we need his white garments. And if you don't do that, then you shall be condemned with the world. And this condemnation with the world... I think is simply going back into the world and sharing their judgment. Scooped up together with them, if verse 16 he gathered them together, well in the, you know, verse 15 is talking about, as I said, the, the rejected uh, amongst the, uh, the household for whom Jesus comes as a thief, they're, they're swept up together with all the Gentile nations and wished off to Armageddon. Uh, and they will suffer the world's judgment. Incidentally, Jesus says to believers, if you offend one of the little ones, it's better that a millstone's hanged around your neck and you're thrown into the sea. That's exactly the language we're now going to come on in the next chapters to read of about Babylon. That she had a millstone, the great whore had a millstone put around her neck and was thrown into the sea. And Jesus is saying, if you, as a believer in me, in my household, offend the little ones, you will be punished with Babylon's judgment. Here in chapter 16, it's put slightly different metaphors, but it's all the same. That if you do not watch and keep your garments, you will walk naked, and they, and the context seems to be, the unbelieving nations will see his shame, and he gathered them together, verse 16, the rejected of the household and also the world, uh, and throws them into Armageddon. So the point is, if we really have a heart for God, we will condemn ourselves, particularly now at the breaking of bread, and then, in the finest, greatest paradox of all time and all the cosmos, all of existence, we who have realized that we are unworthy, week by week and day by day as we recognize our sins, we will not be condemned with the world.